Hello there and welcome to the second podcast from the Cannabinoid Journal. Access to medical cannabis is a complex and multifaceted issue we, and we know that from when the law changed in 2018 we expected prescriptions to increase exponentially but we haven't seen that materialize. In order to solve this problem we must understand it from the perspectives of all those involved in the issue. In order to help us do that this month we have invited we had invited articles from four key experts who are joining us today to discuss this further. I'm very glad to be joined by Carly Barson, a patient and advocate and founder of CanCard, Dr. Leon Barron, GP and founder of the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, Pierre Van Weperen, who's CEO of Grow Pharma, and Crispin Blunt, MP, and Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, founder and lead. Carly, um, I'd like to, uh, I read with your article, great interest, I really kind of felt a sense of almost vitriol at um, how, how the industry or how the landscape has, not, has been very slow to change after the law and got a sense of what it's like to be a patient um, approaching the medical profession and, and the industry or the environment. It seems that there are patients out there with life-limiting disease. Contemporary medicines really aren't providing them with the benefit they think that they should get and they're interested in the, in the potential of a medical cannabis prescription, but. What's it like for these patients approaching their doctor from the patient point of view? I think it's been, you know, it's been a really mixed bag. And I think that's down to education, but it's also down to the fact that a lot of our doctors, unfortunately, have only really been educated on the harms of cannabis. They haven't been educated or, you know, led to understand the medical benefits that this medicine can bring to patients. Um, and I think that that's a key issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and, 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 you know, I think perhaps you've, you've sensed a little bit of frustration um, around uh, from, from my point of view. And I think that's because I have contact with thousands of patients sort of all day, every day. And I really um, and I really struggle to get my head around the things that they're experiencing and the issues that they're experiencing, particularly around the fear of criminalization, um, but also around the fear of consuming medicine which isn't properly standardized or tested um, and so I guess that I have the perspective of uh, the voice of the patient in my ear all day every day and it's quite hard not to to want to do something about that. And, and are many patients simply turned away at this stage or, um, or, or do they all eventually end up in the right place do you think? Turned away as in turned away from their um, yeah, what when approaching the, the doctor, I mean, because we're going to move to uh, Dr. Barron in just a moment to, to explore the kind of medical perspective. But uh, are many patients turned away by their doctor, or or do you do you think many are us are yeah. treated appropriately? Yeah, so I think that it's a mixed bag. So uh, at the moment, we've still got doctors who are reporting people to social services, who are making anonymous reports to the DVLA, who are threatening to call the police. Um, just because a patient with epilepsy is, is using this medicine um, successfully and they believe that it is a harmful illicit drug. And um, they're perhaps quite behind on the research that we're seeing coming out of the likes of Israel and, and, and the US, uh, but also in this country. Um, so we are still experiencing a lot of resistance from medical professionals on the ground. However, we are also seeing a, an interest developed, particularly within primary care. I think that that's a, a, a sort of community that we haven't yet tapped into 
obviously um, only GMC registered specialists can write a prescription at the moment and GPs are sort of left out in that respect. But realistically, they are the centre of that patient's care. Um, and they are, you know, an army that we've yet to tap into. And, you know, part of the process of, of a person being approved for CanCard is that they get to choose whether they self-certify with a summary of care or whether a, 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 com a communication goes to their GP so that their GP can approve that they have a condition for which they are eligible for a card and that card would protect them from any prosecution for possession of cannabis. Mm. Initially, we were concerned that GPs would be reluctant to do this. And what we've actually found is I think it's 80, between 80 and 90% of those who've chosen that option, their GPs have happily engaged and happily um, given that information to us so that we can verify them as a patient and stop them from being criminalised. So on one hand, we see, we're seeing progression. We're seeing GPs seeing that um, there is issues in, in patients' well-being and mental health in, in, fearing of the, in fearing the law where access is unavailable. And on the other hand, we're still seeing some resistance to that. So it's a real mixed bag. Okay, well, th thank you very much. So that, that, you know, that's perfect for me, me to have a chat with Dr. Barron. So really enjoyed your article as well, Dr. Barron, really gave us a sense of what it's like to be a GP. Um, obviously, there's lots of hubbub about specialists now being able to prescribe, but essentially GPs are at the coalface and patients approach their GPs first. And we've got, got a sense of that from, from, from your writing. Um, what's the feeling around medical cannabis amongst groups of GPs in the GP community? Well, it's, um, you know, I, I think Carly makes a point. It's unpredictable, really, at the moment, what the response that you're going to get from an individual GP. I think largely the attitude is shifting now towards a more pro-cannabis and medical cannabis stance, um, slightly less stigmatized but there will be inevitably groups or individual gps who remain very much against cannabis as a, a legitimate treatment or they perhaps have a um this long sort of long-standing idea that it's harmful and it can be detrimental to health which that unquestionably some of the um skunk or the street cannabis that's being used can, can be so um look i think I, I can only comment from the interactions I've had with my fellow colleagues and I guess my my sort of assessment is that over the last couple of years more GPs are talking about it um, more of them are perhaps coming around to the idea that um, this could be a le legitimate therapy for, for patients and um, you know they're beginning to engage a bit more in in that conversation I think ultimately whilst we're excluded as primary prescribers so the um, GPs will tend to encourage their patients to speak to their specialists. And I think actually we've really, patients are really missing out by, um, by not having their GPs, um, by the fact that their GPs can't prescribe this. Um, so I, I think actually that's meant that a lot of GPs aren't perhaps engaging in the way they could be if we were allowed to prescribe. Um, there's obviously bigger that there's there's issues around that in that even if gps could prescribe it would, would that necessarily mean access would be through the nhs perhaps perhaps not because we've still got the challenges of nice and nhs but um i certainly think we should be more involved in the prescribing process mm. well, uh, uh, 
and we certainly got a, a feel for that um, in your article. But so, so from from what you say, then is it more of a, a cultural um, or or a training uh, barrier or a legislative barrier? Do you think? In the... uh, I think it's a mix of all three, actually, Daniel. I think we've all, as I touched upon in the article, we've all been. Um, our experiences throughout medical school and medical training traditionally have been f- quite um, negative around cannabis use. So that's that's the, the first thing to say. Legislation-wise, yes, we because we're not allowed to initiate scripts and um, NICE haven't really endorsed sort of wide NHS access. Then that would that's also an excuse, perhaps, not to um, engage too heavily in this subject matter because actually it doesn't affect GP practice day to day. But I think what is interesting is that up and down the country, patients are turning to their GPs probably on a daily basis. If you sort of, add, you know, if you look across across the board and talking about either medical cannabis products or CBD products that they're using widely for health. So to me, it's just a subject that has to be um, opened up. We have to educate and inform GPs, make sure they're coming from a place of knowledge and that they're not you know, essentially they're not ignorant around this subject matter. Daniel, I must add something. You said that I was the founder of the Medical Cannabis Clinician Society, which, uh, which I'm not actually. I'm, I'm actively involved in, in the group, but I'm, the, the organisation that I founded was the Primary Care Cannabis Network. I do apologise. That's fine, that's fine. But that's, <laughs> that was set up actually with this, this in mind that um, GPs on the ho- largely don't know um, a lot about cannabis and medical cannabis treatments. So um, I, hopefully that's sort of going to be a useful point of contact for some GPs where they can, they can get information and education. Um, so, uh, Pierre, m- moving on to uh, sort of the industry perspective, not, not essentially behind the scenes, but um, the machine in the background. Um, you have a, obviously a very research or outgoing patient-facing um, uh, firm. And you've, you expressed in your article a, a sort of a key willingness for industry collaboration to try and overcome some of the barriers. Um, what do you think some of the, the barriers are from the industry perspective? Yeah, it's a good point. So, so we, we've done a couple of really good internal, but also using some external references strategy sessions, because this is an emerging market and, and they're, they're always very similar from a uh, dynamic perspective, similar things going on in these markets. Uh, it's growing, so there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of activism, uh, 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 we should fake focus on patients, and the industry uh, compete with each other, uh, very often uh, losing a little bit of focus in terms of do we really need to uh, spend a lot of time on actually competing with each other, or should we focus on growing the market and look at the patient and making sure that patients get more access. So having said that, barriers have always been, initially been supply, because we know that um, at at the start of this, there were lots of restrictions with importing products. So doctors would describe more or less the products that were available instead of what might necessarily be the right products for patients. Uh, What you also don't want to do if you don't have consistent supply, you don't want to start somebody on a therapy like this, because many of these patients have already tried loads of other things. So you don't want them to start on something and then three months later, you can't have the supply. So as an industry, we focused very much on getting supply chains sorted. So that's done and that's a lot better. There are still things we can improve on that. 
then the next part is uh, prices and and i think uh, in, in in the kind of efforts between ourselves prices have gone down significantly over the last 12 months uh, but probably can down, come down a little bit further even so that makes it more accessible for patients from that perspective and then um, the, the other part is uh, finding more doctors who want to prescribe products because there's a we know there's a big demand side uh, we as an industry should focus really on educating doctors, training doctors, and then collecting the data that they generate by prescribing uh, patients. So that will be our focuses. Um, so, so moving to, uh, to, to Crispin Blunt, thank you for joining us. Um, so you're uh, the, the power behind the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, and you had an excellent report published earlier this year, part one, on your assessment of the landscape, which really was outstanding. Um, industry defining, you could call it. And we are all eagerly awaiting your part two conclusions. Um, I wanted to ask you, so can, can you give us any clue as to what some of these part two conclusions might be um, as you release your report in the following year? Or, or, or is it that the industry, you know, as, as Pierre states, the, the supply chains are better, the drugs are more affordable, GP attitudes and uh, specialist attitudes are changing. Um, is the problem solved or, are there, or do we have a long way to go? No, the problem's very far from solved. And you, you asked the question, I, I think, about whether the uh, uh, barriers were cultural, training, or legislative of the, uh, in the medical area. Uh, they are certainly legislative and regulatory. Uh, the uh, practical barriers in place around import and the additional costs imposed upon the industry by the way in which it's regulated uh, its regulatory framework is almost designed not to work uh, unless you have the money to go private to access um, uh, medicine from cannabis. And if you're going private, you're paying costs that are way, way over what needs to be paid um, uh, because of the uh, regulatory uh, burden that's placed on, placed on the product. Uh, and we have this uh, strange dichotomy in the UK where we have... Uh, we play host to GW Pharma, which is one of the leading uh, uh, producers of medicine from cannabis uh, in the world. Now, that's based on 20 years of having battled through the uh, standard pharmaceutical assessment uh, process uh, on uh, products which uh, certainly appear to work, uh, Sativex and Epilidex, around uh, for a, a certain number of patients. Uh, but what would appear to be clear from the vast amount of uh, treatment that is accessed criminally, um, the people growing their own uh, medicine and, and, and the rest, is that the uh, potential for much greater effectiveness of medicine from cannabis, uh, if one can widen the authorised uh, access to uh, a product uh, reasonably rapidly, is, is very significant. Uh, but you've... Uh, are we going to continue down a product uh, route uh, which requires a standard pharmaceutical assessment of a product which is going to require the order of uh, a decade and more investment in uh, the, the licensing and the, and the, and the production? Uh, or are we going to uh, properly assess 
uh, this product as it is a plant-based medicine, which doesn't sit with the with the, with the standard pharmaceutical assessment process. And uh, are we going to move the regulation of this product out of the Home Office, whose default position is to fight the war on drugs and to prevent drugs that have been uh, identified as potentially dangerous and have been prohibited um, from uh, coming into the UK at all, uh, or are we going to move it to uh, administration and regulation by the Department of Health, uh, supported by the Environment Department, which has a uh, business interest in uh, hemp farmers being able to grow this and then to be able to take the full value of the product by uh, the flower production, which can lead either to serving uh, pe people in the wellness market um, or indeed patients of medicine from cannabis. Uh, are we going to allow uh, the interests of the wider economy, uh, represented perhaps by the Treasury and the Business Department, uh, to support these industries, uh, to enable the United Kingdom to be able to take a proper uh, bioscience lead that all our policies um, would suggest? Now, all of these things point in uh, one direction, uh, that we are going to make sensible progress here. But... Uh, we do need to advance on all fronts. There is snail's pace uh, progress. The, the latest vote by the UN is in, encouraging about uh, moving uh, 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 cannabis out of the uh, most uh, restrictive schedule of all, at least formally that's uh, got over the line. It, it, doesn't, it makes no specific change in the United Kingdom regulatory framework. Uh, and uh, what we... And now need, I think, is uh, to reinforce the hand of the medics, of GPs in particular, of getting, of helping uh, GPs, uh, uh, those GPs who can see the, the need uh, for their ability to be able to prescribe uh, medicine from cannabis without having to kick it upstairs to someone else or, 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 or effectively into the, uh, the NHS route that is almost impossible. Uh, for people, uh, for people to access, um, uh, then to have both a medical campaign uh, for patients to be able to have access uh, to the undoubted wider benefits of this uh, of the, of this medicine, um, as well as a political and regulatory campaign. Uh, these things reinforce each other, so that politicians uh, who want change. Um, do not then find that those politicians who hold administrative responsibility, who are understandably risk averse in an area which they don't understand, um, into which they are likely to be plunged into public criticism um, uh, 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 if they put a, if they put a, put a foot wrong, uh, it can then have their uh, back covered, if you like, by uh, a medical lobby saying uh, there is huge benefit here for patients. Uh, we need to access it sooner rather than later. And indeed, every day we delay are people who are being driven to use opiates for pain relief. Um, are people unable, are people continuing to have to access a criminal supply chain and therefore not getting um, the validated type of medicine that they want? So um, how come, because uh, obviously the, the political world from an outsider's point of view can be obscure how does one generate a, 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 a useful medical lobby then to to help um, reduce the, the political risk of these decisions well we need to get all the elements of 
this campaign, it is a campaign to be working in sync. And to some degree, that uh, that does need resources and it needs resources applied in the right place. And at the moment, the, the blockage is significantly regulatory and legislative. We've got the wrong regulatory structure and politicians need convincing uh, that it's safe to make the change and it's appropriate to make the change in view of the very significant public benefits that will come um, from making change. Now that needs uh, the game changer, which has really occurred around the subject in the last uh, decade or so, is the creation of a legal industry which has proper interests and has uh, finance that can be uh, an investors that are looking for a return in this industry, then to create the resources uh, to put this lobby together. Um, and to extend this is, I'm, it is a straightforward appeal for purposes of CDPRG, which I chaired. The purpose was to bring capacity into the political um, campaigning space uh, where we could produce a research work of the quality of the, you were kind enough to refer to about our analysis of the uh, access of how people are accessing medicine from cannabis, which we produced in the summer, which made clear that uh, the massive amount of access continues to be via the criminal uh, supply chain in one form or another. And this is an outrageous position uh, for patients to find themselves in who know perfectly well um, that their MS symptoms are uh, treated by uh, medicines based from cannabis and they simply can't access them unless they've got pots of money. It's, uh, it's just not fair. And it's not fair on the police uh, then to be raiding people at dawn and seizing their medicine. And when they realize the position that they put in, um, uh, how appalled they are, which is why the police are now very firmly institutionally, both the Federation um, as well as the, uh, the police chiefs in terms of their policy, are on our side of reform. Well, we now need to get um, a, a, as strong as possible a medical lobby uh, then to help reinforce uh, our efforts at the political, levy, uh, political level uh, to put, um, continue to put quality research papers into play uh, where we acquire a reputation for being wholly reliable in terms of the evidence that we're putting in and that we are representing the economic health and public, wider public interests of, uh, of people in the United Kingdom uh, in all, all its ways of making change in this space. Um, so Carly, um, so as Crispin has stated, things have, uh, albeit at a snail's pace or a slow pace, uh, improved over the last 10 years. There's now a, a supply chain. There is you know, political interest and all movement um, and industry developed and there is change in the, in the, in the clinical um, environment in terms of the culture and the understanding. Are, are patients now hopeful or dismayed at the pace? Are they hopeful for change or, or that things will get better for them or, or are they still? Um, I think, I think the, 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 you know, the patient community have spent many years campaigning to legitimize a medicine that they feel is the only thing that works for them. And they were, you know, they've spent years of feeling quite downtrodden and not listened to. And I think when 2018 happened and the law changed, there was, you know, the community was really buoyed by that decision. Um, but to face facts, we're two years now on from that law change in 2018 and access um, still sits with those who are affluent enough to be able to afford it. 
And so what we've done is... All, all, all those prepared to break the law. All those prepared to break the law. Um, and that's something that I feel quite strongly about protecting those people because, you know, my, my phone is, you know, rings all the time with people who are have just been raided, who are beyond upset. Sometimes I get calls in the middle of a raid and all I can hear is banging and crying and it's, you know, it's horrific. Um, and so, you know, my focus, I guess, was on trying to engage with the police and try and understand their frustrations as well and implement something that would help both, um, you know, parties. And so that's that's what I did with Cancard. I think Cancard has, has potentially lifted spirits a lot because they feel that actually somebody's on their side and what it's taken is a lot of hard work and cups of tea and, and explanations and, and really thorough work with really senior police to get them to the point where they can understand this from a patient's point of view. And once they did, there wasn't much resistance to, to putting something into place that would protect these vulnerable people. And I'm really proud of that work. And I'm really proud of the community for sharing their stories and opening their hearts so that we could make that move. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think that, you know, there was a, there was a big sort of exciting energy in the community in 2018, which then for the past two years has, has, has turned quite, has turned the other way. And there's disappointment, there's frustration. Um, Cancard, you know, isn't, isn't the be all and end all. It, we, we, we aren't at the moment sorting out access for people. We, we're simply saying, you, you know, we don't think you should be criminalized. And so I think that that's lifted people's spirits again um, and help them to understand that there is actually work going on in the background, but, you know, for, for the average patient who doesn't see this work and doesn't feel what goes into it, it's still a, a long time to remain frustrated, in fear, feeling, um, you know, feeling like they are discriminated against just simply for using a medicine that's, that's keeping them well. Mm. Can, I, can I ask a question? Sorry to, to interrupt. When we say access, what is it we actually mean? Is it access in terms of, is it affordable for patients or is it access in terms of, can we see doctors who prescribe it or is it a combination of both? The, the reason why I ask is because, I mean, we look on, on social media and as I said earlier, we are, we're very keen on driving prices down further. In, in our perspective, and I'm more than happy to be corrected, prices for cannabis through the legal route are not that significantly higher than black market prices. Yeah. If you look on black market, so, so what, what is the actual real issue in it? Okay, so when I you know, suppose when I say access, I mean access, I suppose I mean access without any fear, whether that is through the illicit market, growing their own or, or engaging with a doctor. Um, because I believe that, you know, patients are going to do whatever it feels right for them. Um, feels right mm -hmm. for their own wellness and I think we need to open up all of those routes to access um, but in terms of prices I, I understand that prices are coming down and they're coming down potentially to the level where you know there's a slight it's, it's slightly more expensive to access from the, the private clinic than it is to go down the street to your dealer yeah prices aren't that significantly different at the moment however okay. the majority of patients are accessing via home grow so what what they are you know the average price for that is is between one and two pounds a gram and that is going to be really hard to to compete with um yeah. and you know these people these these people are often you know they're low they're the majority of them are from low-income families they're on disability benefits they're unable to work 
they often have you know families to support and rent to pay and you know the, they are always going to have responsibilities of, above and beyond their own well-being and can't mm-hmm. always prioritize their medicine um and you know we've had you know reports from patients who are on private prescriptions who are actually prioritizing their medicine over their food um, because of the fear of returning to the illicit market and that's something that you know is deeply worrying to me yeah no no i completely understand. i'm glad you clarified that because i think um we as an it's just to put, as an industry we will never be able to compete with that home goal so so it's, it's probably very important to split those things when we talk about taking away that fear, which is, I think, very important that Carlin's work well, you, you will, well, well, Hang on a minute. You will be able to compete with them because you'll be competing with them on quality. Um, if you're growing, it's like growing your own vegetables in a vegetable oh, patch. You know perfectly exactly well if you go to a supermarket, you're going to get a reliable uh, strand exactly. of, of, of well-produced uh, uh, Stuff whilst the if you want to find stuff that's equivalent, you've got to go to the weird carrot shaped yeah. counter, yeah. um, of stuff that hasn't been produced quite properly that might be called organic but probably isn't. Um, yeah. no, you are so right, Crispin. That's exactly where I was going to go because there's <laughs> obviously that the difference between access to the medical route with medical oversight with quality produced product stability and all of those things. And those are those are I just wanted to point out those are different things, and, and if we if we can focus on that second bit, because that's the part that we can work on and new form of regulation and government and NHS and NICE can work on. I think that's that's massively important. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, I think that I would argue that I, as a doctor, I think that patients are not arguing for one cannabis or another, but they are seeking relief from their symptoms by one mode or another. And really, I think that the mode by which that is achieved is irrelevant but the relief of symptoms is, is the ultimate goal. Um, it just so happens that, you know, in medical cannabis, or always like, like in your opinion on this, Dr. Barron, but medical cannabis, if we are exploring its, its um, efficacy and we think there is efficacy and you know, the, the whole problem is that we think that there is, but there's is a difficulty in, in delivering it to the patients. Um, Dr. Barron, do you think it's a, it's a is it a, a medical cannabis problem or a symptom relief problem then? Sorry, Daniel, just say that again. The, so, so, so we're all arguing for increased access in one way or yes. another to medical yeah. cannabis, but actually what patients are requiring is not necessarily access to medical cannabis, but relief from their life-limiting symptoms. And it just yes. so happens that in this context that we think medical cannabis is the key to doing that. Well, it's certainly one option, isn't it, for patients? So I think as a GP or as a specialist, that any, any doctor really has to look at the whole picture. What we have with cannabis is... Um, something that's been proven time and time again to help a range of symptoms. And I think it's quite an argument, really, a strong argument that, um, particularly from the perspective that Carly's coming from, that when a patient sits in front of their GP and t- says, well, funny enough, my cannabis seems to be the only thing that helps me um, get some sleep or help my mood or um, gets you know, gets me out of the house in the day, then um, to know that there's a, you know, a, a, a global... Uh, medical cannabis industry and market out there that we're not utilizing seems absolutely inexcusable for it not to be an option for patients i think you know it's been mentioned time and time again that cannabis can is a very useful tool in a prescriber's toolbox and i think it should be there and available for 
um, patients um, from doctors who have had some training in prescribing that shouldn't necessarily sit with specialists. The, um, you know, so look, there's always going to be the question of efficacy and evidence base. We have to work with, with what we have. And, you know, the evidence base is building exponentially. Uh, there's huge value now in, we know in observational data and treating patients at the same time as gathering data. Yes, it's not going to fit neatly into the, the traditional pharma route, the RCTs, but there are obviously ways around that. Um, look, I think what's remarkable, if you look at the UK and COVID and the, the speed at which we've got the, the COVID vaccines out, what we've demonstrated is that we're actually good, we're very good at when, when we want to be, when we apply our knowledge and, our, and, and the, the, uh, the know-how and the, the will to, to progress. And, you know, I mean, look at the difference between what we've done with, with the COVID vaccines and medical cannabis. I mean, we are literally at the back of the queue when it comes to, I think, when it comes to attitudes towards medical cannabis and, and access, wider access to, I'm talking about prescribed um, medic, medical treatments. We really are kind of slow to, 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 um, to take this on. And I think when I sort of listen to everyone's views and perspective and where we're all, where we're all coming from, I think the natural step now is to clearly CRISPR needs medical, um, you know, the politicians and the, the policymakers need, um, need backing and the support and the guidance from the medical communities. I think the natural step is to look at the, the work that Carly's doing with CanCar to, um, to, to look closely at these interactions that are happening between patients and their GPs to then start to question the, how, how do we turn the, the, um, the, the, the patient who's using street cannabis into a medical cannabis patient? How do we use that information and data to try and drive the argument towards GP prescribing and GP education? You know, it, it's clearly the elephant in the room. How can you sit there as a GP and support the, the can card and hear from someone that it's, you know, that cannabis is helping and um, improving life quality of life and to then not naturally think about, well, how can we then, how can I move that patient into a medical sphere and away from this, this life, this, this, these choices that they're having to make often, which are not necessarily in the best interest of that particular patient. So um, I think there's a there's a natural progression now to try and kind of all work together to try and produce data and policies that help to change and shift the, the not only the legislative landscape but the medical landscape as well. Well, here I've got a proposal writing out of this is that I would like to work with you and and to commit and for CDPRG to be able to commission an outfit called Policy First and uh, with Blair Gibbs as the the guy who's just recently come out of the number ten policy unit to go back. To, to work for um, uh, uh, for policy for, for public public first, I beg your pardon, public first, the name of the of the uh, government relations uh, outfit, um, who are uh, in order to create a medical lobby for medicine from cannabis, um, to actually get to reinforce your hand with your primary uh, yeah. primary care network, but to actually, uh, and I want to be the link. Um, between the, the industry and the investors who put resources into us to enable us to commission public first uh, to assist you to create that lobby because that lobby then gives ministers and politicians the cover because they're frightened of this and they need a decent medical lobby that's saying come on we understand why um 
Uh, and, and in the same way as uh, doctors don't know about this and not educated in right. this from a medical school and the rest. Uh, but uh, stories like Carly's um, are self-evident. Um, and we have got to get we have got to get serious about this. Well, look, we are we're looking at um, we're running a poll next early next year and we're hopefully going to get get to GPs and get their attitudes, get something on knowledge and attitudes around medical cannabis. I think it's a really to me, it's like the obvious area to focus on. It's yeah. the interaction between yeah. a patient and their GP. And, you know, um, unfortunately, the, you know, the the establishment, if you like, the medical establishment hasn't taken to this, um, hasn't sort of run towards this. I, I can't really comment on the Royal College, but my only, I mean, in terms of the, the Royal College of GPs, the the guidance they gave was in 2018. They produced some desktop guidance to GPs. And I, by no means, I don't want to criticize the college, but it, it's, it's slightly out of date now. And it's, it's not that useful. It's not that practical, really. It need, you know, I think there's all, there's all kinds of um, organizations that can be brought in and discussions can take place. Well, um, like, but, everything, like everything, it will be people who don't know the full picture who are risk averse who will write advice that is that is not going to get them into trouble yeah no i understand i think there's a lot of work that we can be done behind the scenes collectively that could help to and, uh, and that's where we're going to look to people like pierre and the people who sit behind you pierre the owners of your business that the big change in this space is now there is a very substantial business uh, obviously huge in north america but if we're to get serious in europe um, we're going to need to break down these regulatory barriers um, in the United Kingdom and, uh, and more widely. And for that, we're going to need we're going to need resources applied in the public affairs space um, and in the <laughs> medical space um, to create the lobbies uh, to give politicians the confidence uh, uh, on the basis of evidence and science that we're then able to marshal together, uh, then to uh, uh, to present these arguments. But that needs that needs funding. And I, I don't get any money out of this. I do this because I believe in it. What's the saying? Yeah, um, I get it. Uh, this is, but I want to employ researchers who are going to um, be able to collate all this stuff, and I want to employ twice as many of them as I have at the minute in order to uh, to create and present these arguments. And I think the just that to add one extra point, I think the cost analysis that Nice have done could e could easily be reevaluated in time. I think that's an argument that's going to be put to to, to rest quite soon and that there, there could be huge cost savings with medical cannabis when you look at the alternative scripts that are being issued i think the i, I think that's going to become very self-evident and of course it's uh, yeah no, you you addressed you you both addressed two things that in, in the article that we heard we, we both mentioned that's why i think because when we need to work together as an industry and sit with you to to pool our resources and and help you with that because that's that's obviously clear that that needs to happen so that's that's a call towards my my call not not just the people behind me but the, the other industries or companies that are in the uk yeah. space to work mm -hmm. together on doing that and to your point lee and i think you're right i mean look, look at we, we i know there are people arguing about data and randomized controlled trials and everything else but we we need to look at a different way of evaluating this nice in the current modeling focus on incremental cost and everything else on the treatment 
that is introduced versus the others. But the only way to make that work is if we do actually do have to have studies to compare that. We need to step away from that and say, look at the evidence that is there. There is no point in doing a head-to-head study between opioids and cannabis because we know what the downsides of opioids are and we know what the cost of opioids are. Look at look at what would happen in cost savings if you would replace some of that by using cannabis. And you get to a different evaluation which will actually lead to massive cost savings that are that are related to the product, but not necessarily based on efficacy data to model mm. it. So it's a different way of looking exactly. at it. That's a conversation that needs to be had. I think one of, the, one of the things, you made an important point there, Pierre, and one of the things that I think that they missed out on was a bit more of a zoomed out approach. So if I take myself or a selection of 20 patients that we have on our books, we can clearly see that actually them utilising cannabis has dramatically changed their dependence on benefits on the state. Quite often they get back into part-time work. We haven't zoomed out enough to look at lifestyle, to look at costumes, to look at, is that person on universal credit? What's happened afterwards? We need, we need case studies. Realistically, I know that we can't make medical claims like this, but from my point of view, from what I see on the ground for patients, this medicine can be and is quite often life-changing for people. And it's very, very different, particularly for chronic pain patients, to what their life would be like if they were on opiates. When I was on opiates, you know, I couldn't get out the house. I was still in a wheelchair. I was very much dependent on, on benefits and the state. After dropping, dropping that and switching it for cannabis, I now work full time. I'm a contributing mm. member of society. I pay my own rent. I don't rely on anyone. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not having subsidized prescriptions anymore. There's a, there's a bigger picture here that we need to zoom yep. out. And if we could utilize some of our patients' case studies to zoom that out and make averages and extrapolate that data, I think we'd have them, yeah. we'd have those figures looking more realistic, but also yes. looking more favorable towards this as a medicine. I just think um, it's frustrating because it's like, it's people like yourself, Carly, and a few others out there, hopefully myself as well, that we're almost trying to do some, we're trying to do things from the ground up, but you know, we run on limited resources and we're, we're up against biggest large established medical bodies or political policies and groups and you know it can feel at times like you either you're fighting an uphill battle or um, you're not maybe being supported by the wider you, your peers and colleagues and, the, and and I'm confident the end point will be that we'll you know we will get to where we need to be and that patients will will get the access as we've sort of said but through medical channels um, but um, you know I think there's great power in working together and collaborating on this because clearly we've all got the, the same objectives but we're sort of busy in our own little worlds at time aren't we in our amongst our own groups and things yeah. and that's the that's the point you're right leon i think but that's a very similar thing in look at any emerging market whether it's in healthcare or in, or in technology or in science we we focus on our little things and we focus on uh, how much money we have invested as a company and trying yeah. to make a return on investment. And and Carly is right. I think the word zooming out is probably a very, very important thing on that. When I, when I was working in, in immunology, we had anti-international for rheumatoid arthritis. And the case became so much more, um, uh, what's the word, appealing when we started looking at how quickly people lose their jobs when they are diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. 
And if you don't treat them within a year or two years after being diagnosed, they're going to lose their job and all the other stuff that kicks in. So the cost to society is so much bigger than just treating those patients with the medication. And when you start treating them, they stay in their jobs, they, they keep contributing to society. So look at those things other than just, ooh, uh, is the efficacy 5% higher than something else? Or does, mm. does the medicine in itself cost? And, and, and we are now in a situation where a lot of the discussion is probably dominated by activism. And I have no problem with activism because I think it's important to move to get things going. But we need to re- kind of reframe that, that conversation and yeah. make it about the bigger societal and the bigger impact to patient numbers, and not just on, uh, with all respect for for the activists, not just about the 20 or 30 epilepsy kids mm. who mm. who now have to spend a lot of money to to uh, uh, make sure that they don't have seizures. That's important, and they need to be helped. But that's not the bigger picture. There are a million mm. patients out there, or there are two million patients out there that yeah. will benefit yeah. from having. Access right. to this. And, uh, you know it's one thing making a lot of noise which is quite easy really in this spec there's lots of things we can all talk about but the, i guess it's then moving that into clear policies clear very you know informative data that can inform policy makers and and sort of providing accurate um information really because you know that's you know there's a sort of standard isn't there that we all have to get reached to if we want to kind of bring in the right um, if we want to get the wider support from our peers and so on. Yep. So I, mean, I think uh, some excellent points. I think we've all moved, moved forward. Um, uh, just for a, a cl- some closing statements, um, so Crispin then, so moving forward with a, a medical lobby as you as you discussed, uh, as, you, as you brought forward, um, is something we'll be pursuing in the next few months? Well, I hope so. But I need I need the resources to do so, and I'm and the, the reason I'm focusing on is I'm in the middle of a pitch to uh, find new supporters for CEPRG. Uh, there's a unique opportunity now with uh, the Future Fund. I can, uh, in effect, double the output of uh, people's investment in CDPRG if I can secure it promises of it by the end of January. Um, and I see us engaged in a four-year campaign. Uh, whilst this government is in office, um, then to change uh, to change the mindset of officials whilst they're working um, uh, with the stability of a, a government that has a majority it's going to get through until uh, 2024. Uh, uh, then there's the opportunity to review uh, given what's happened then. But we do have the opportunity now if we get serious about it. And I need to, obviously, looking at the people who are investing an awful lot of money in all sorts of uh, areas associated with uh, both um, cannabis and indeed the psychedelics, uh, where they're bringing, but the potential is absolutely huge of uh, patient benefit. Um, and every day we delay is every day uh, people don't get treated for their depression, every day more people commit suicide, every day people continue to suffer trauma. Um, every day people continue to be unable to effectively relieve the effects of their MS and the rest. Um, it's you know, time costs. Mm, and it's costing people's health. Mm, absolutely, yeah. and, and perhaps the, the, the wider cost of not pre- of not prescribing um, is being ignored over the over the cost of prescribing. Um, well, that's a, a very important Pierre point Pierre made about the economic costs here. The 
uh, we need to get serious about that economic analysis needs to be got into this space as well. Not only do we need to get medical opinion mobilized and a medical lobby saying, for goodness sake, give us the opportunity to make people better, which we don't have uh, uh, at our hands at the minute. Um, but also we need to improve our economy um, and the, uh, the opportunity of, of simply for, for patients becoming uh, uh, more productive um, because their depression is being treated or whatever the condition happens to be. But sitting alongside us, Britain's bioscience lead, which is meant to be an area in which we're proud to take a lead. We've had brilliant decision-making uh, to enable us to, to access the vaccine on COVID um, faster than anyone else. Uh, well, let's get that quality of decision-making into this space. I think we all, all, everyone is nodding, I think we're all in agreement. Um, does anyone else have any, any, any closing uh, closing uh, sentences or two? Well, I've been very grateful to be joined today by uh, Carly Barton, um, Pierre Van Wepperin, Dr. Leon Barron and Christian Blunt uh, for, for this podcast for the Cannabino Journal. Um, I look forward to uh, all the articles coming forth next month and future podcasts. Thank you very much for joining. It's been an excellent session. Thank you, Dan. Thank you all. Okay. Thanks so much. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Okay. Lovely to okay. see you. Okay. Okay.